Good morning, y'all. Good morning. All right, yeah, I am honored uh, and excited to be here. So uh, like Amy talked about earlier, I don't know where she is, but when she came down, I said, yo, Amy, uh, I'm going to have to pay you to come on the road with us and give that same spiel that you did about the event wherever we go. So, yeah, so we've done, you know, six of those so far. You know, the most recent one was last night in Houston, and that's where I'm from. So it's like I'm there, and everybody that I, like, grew up with came out. So, li like, literally, friends from elementary school are right there. And uh, back in elementary school and middle school and high school, um, not a single person thought that this is what I would be doing with my life, right? <laughs> so a lot of stuff to catch up on. So we stayed out and hung out and talked until, like, 1 a.m., and then... Uh, I'm like, oh, I've got to get to bed because I've got to fly to Phoenix in the morning. So I got up at 4, I got on a plane, and um, I came here, and I touched down. So I'm excited to be with you all today. So just know that uh, if I don't emote it very much, I'm, uh, it's just because uh, I haven't slept, okay? <laughs> um, if you're able, if, if you would, uh, stand with me uh, as we read from Matthew chapter 5. Uh, like Vermont said, um, I did, I served as a pastor for 16 years. And uh, I'm no longer a pastor anymore. I'm just a happy member um, at, at the church that I go to, right? So I show up late sometimes. I do like y'all do. I don't sit in the front row at all, right? This <laughs> feels very much like home. Um, so Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1, and I'm going to read to verse 16. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible, and uh, it'll be on the screen as I click these slides. It says this. Um, when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all of those who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Let's pray. Um, our Father, as we come to you this morning, we come to you as people that are in great need, Father. Um, I pray that you would remove us, Lord, from the naive optimism that we have that assumes that um, 
we're okay. I pray that you would remind us, Lord, that our neediness is not a liability, but an asset if we stand in the company of somebody who has no needs. That's where we stand today, Lord. So help us to embrace the blessing that comes from needing you and having what we need. We pray you would speak to us today, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Why don't you all take your seats? If you don't know what you have, you're going to misuse what you've got. If you don't know what you have, you're going to misuse what you've got. Um, Your behavior will never rise above the level of your vision. If somebody were to come to you right now and said, hey, um, I've got a job for you to do. I want you to spend the next 12 hours with no break filling up these bags of sand. I'm not going to pay you anything, and I may or may not give you a thank you at the end. How many people would sign up? What if they came back and said, oh, I forgot to tell you um, this. There is a hurricane that is going to make Katrina look like a rainstorm. It's headed towards your hometown, and it will destroy everybody that you love unless we get people to fill up these bags of sand to absorb some of the water. I don't have anything to pay you. You may or may not get a thank you at the end. How many of you would sign? The behavior, the thing that I asked of you, is the exact same thing. Do you know what the difference or the gap was? Vision. Vision controls us. Vision leads and behavior follows. What I mean when I say vision controls us is that it evokes action from us. That what we find is that more important then what we experience or what we do is how we interpret what we experience and what we do. I think one of the things that unites us as people, and this is one of the reasons why I set out to do this little tour that we did, is um, I feel like if humanity were a country, um, grief would be the common language, the official language. It's the thing that unites us, trouble. It's the reason why you struggle to get people to come to a family reunion, but every time there's a funeral, you have a mini family reunion. There's this thing about trouble and hardship that unites us. We all have it in common, life just beating us down. And sometimes... We get to a place where our vision is a little cloudy and it's obscured. We tend not to be able to look very far. Our vision of God, our vision of prayer, our theology of prayer is usually shaped 
by how God has answered our most recent prayer. And it gets tough if you feel like, God, I'm presently doing what it is that you called me to do, but nothing is working out the way that you said that it would work out. And you hear all those ums because everybody has that common experience and that feeling. And if our vision of the goodness of God is clouded there, then our behavior will follow. If there's no light at the end of the tunnel, we don't have fuel to keep on going. I was on a plane to Austin on Thursday. Um, We were set to leave at 8 o'clock and um, we pull out. And then we pull back in, and the pilot gets on the phone. He says, hey, y'all, we pulled back in because one of the engines was leaking fuel. We're going to get somebody to come and fix it right quick. And I'm like, no, 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 no. We've just got to throw this plane away and get another one, (laughs) right? There's not enough duct tape in the world. Like, I don't need a quick fix. But isn't that what it feels like when we hit trouble. It's like, no, like, I don't see a way out of this. I feel like the fuel on the inside is leaking. And we get to a place where we see, God, it's hard for me to do the things that you're continually asking me to do. Shout out to my friends right here sitting on the front row. I appreciate (laughs) y'all. It's hard for me to do the things that God has asked me to do. And do you know what? We spend our time doing, trying to convince ourselves that we need to do different, that we need to behave different. But what if I told you the problem of your behavior may not be rooted in your willpower, it may be rooted in your vision. I'm 39 years old and I still play ball all the time. About five years ago, I was playing uh, ball and I hurt my back. and um, So I go to the doctor And I said, yo, I hurt my back and I've done everything, right? I've gotten massages on my back. I've tried to rub it out. I've iced my back and it's not getting any better. And they said, oh, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. Um, You feel the symptoms in your back. Oh, but the source of your back pain is in your hamstring. Your hamstrings are very, very weak. You strengthen those hamstrings and your back will get better. You're beating yourself up over your behavior. (laughs) Your behavior are the symptoms. The problem is the weak vision, the weak hamstrings. You strengthen those and things change. And I feel like that's what Jesus is doing as he finds himself here in Matthew chapter 5 preaching uh, probably the most famous sermon to ever be Preach. Look here at verses uh, 1 and 2. Um, it says this, when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them. For a little bit of context, Jesus is going to spend his time teaching this crowd about discipleship. Now, sometimes that's a Christianese word that's lost on us, but discipleship is just what it means to follow Jesus. And the most important thing about following Jesus or following anybody is where they're leading. Jesus is seeking to lead a group of people towards holistic 
human flourishing, mind, body, and soul, he's saying there's actually a way to experience the fullness of what it means to be human, somebody created to be connected to God. The rest of the world is giving you bad advice on how to do it. I want to give you a renewed vision of what that looks like. The Sermon on the Mount is not Jesus giving requirements for people to enter into the kingdom. This is what you have to do to come into the kingdom. It's not giving some idealized picture of the future. All right, this is what things will look like when the earth is all said and done and we go and spend an eternity with God in the new heavens and the new earth. This is Jesus casting a vision for what life can and what, what life could and what life should look like in the here and now. So he's going to talk about how we relate to God, how we relate to people, how we relate to the poor, how we relate to enemies, how we relate to ourselves. And the place is so important. It says this, when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. That's important because it wants you to think about Moses and the Old Testament when a prophet or somebody like that came to speak this message from God. Moses gave the tablets from the top of a mountain. It's a position that's elevated. You look down at folks, and Jesus is getting ready to get up on here and speak with the same authority, but he sits down on top of this mountain in the position of a rabbi or a teacher saying, all right, y'all get comfortable. I'm about to get it in and get to work. And then you see the people, the disciples come to him, and they sit close. The crowds are just hanging. And Jesus is speaking loudly so that eavesdroppers are welcome to tap in. Though some parts may feel irrelevant to us, all of this is important because Jesus is not just speaking about what Christians should and should not do. Jesus is talking to humans about the pathway towards human flourishing. Holistic, mind, body, and soul. And as we talk about experiencing the blessing that comes from being a part of God's kingdom, I think there's one phrase that I want you to walk away with that I think helps to capture one of the most prevailing messages in the Sermon on the Mount, and that's this. If you want to enjoy God's kingdom and the blessings of God's kingdom, all you need is need. The prerequisite to enjoying the good things that God wants from us is this deep awareness of your need. Here's what I mean. Um, we uh used to play this game when we were kids. Uh, Y'all may have done the same thing called Opposite Day. Y'all remember that, right? Where it was like, all right, listen, today, everything that I say actually means the opposite, okay? I'm just going to let you know that on the front end, and it's a game that we play, so that when you hear things that would frustrate you and abhor you or make you mad or make you feel like I was in 
insulting you. I just want to give you the map key so when you hear those things, you actually know that I'm not saying those things. It's opposite day. So if I would say, yo, you really get on my nerves and I hate you, right? It's like, what do you mean? It's a hot got you. It's opposite day. I really don't like that fit that you have on. Those clothes, they're terrible. I hate your shoes. And it's like, yo, my grandmama got me these shoes. And I got you. It's opposite day. It helps you to reorient your perspective when you feel like you're getting an unfortunate message. As Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount, I think the best thing for us to know if we feel beaten or broken down in this world that we're in from following Jesus, it's him saying, hey, y'all, it's opposite day. Look here at verses, uh, you know, starting at verse 3. Uh, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So he starts off and he has these parallel lists. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, right? Uh, What? Uh, Blessed are the humble, the hungry and thirsty. And you see on the front end of that list, nobody wants those things to be indicative of them. None of us would choose that side of the list. Poor in spirit could be just spiritual poverty, but it's all holistic that there are times where it is a, this uh, uh, material poverty sometimes has a way of reinforcing the concept that we are not independent, that we need. And what Jesus is trying to do is rearrange the way that we think of blessings and burdens, advantages and disadvantages. It's this reversal of sorts. I can't pull it up on the screen, but if you have your Bible, look at verse 3 and 10. And they set these little, like, bookends, this little, like, frame to help us capture what's being said in verse 3. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You do not think of the persecuted and poor being inheritors of a kingdom. We tend to think of them being on the outskirts, but Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. There's something different. God, in this sense, is promising the best of outcomes to people who find themselves in the worst 
predicaments. There's a correlation between these two, and it is not the correlation that we tend to think of. I think what Jesus is trying to do here is he's trying to defrost the windows of our trouble. Y'all are in Phoenix, so y'all may not have this, but where I'm from, yeah, um, around this time of the year, it gets this, uh, it gets to be this thing that we like to call cold, okay, so, you know, and when it gets cold, um, the sun doesn't do what it does, like, all year, and you wake up, and your windows have, like, this, I don't know how to explain it in a way that this context would get. Ice, so what you have in your fridge, <laughs> it appears on the windshield. So you get this ice, you get this frost, and what takes place is this. A windshield that is usually transparent that you can see through, you can't see through. So even though you're facing the right direction, you find your vision obscured and you can't move fast and quick and you just feel like you're at a standstill. But we also have this thing called heaters. And in our car, you turn it on, and what it does is it slowly gets rid of all that frost. And it reminds you that that fog is not solid. It reminds you that that ice on the windshield is temporary. It's not solid. And as it defrosts, what you find is you're able to look through the windshield instead of just looking at it. Our trouble so often in life is the ice on the windshield. We look at it and we feel like we're at a standstill, that there's no way to move forward. And what Jesus is trying to do here is give you a vision that, no, 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 your trouble is actually transparent. It's not as solid as you think that it is. It's not an impediment to receiving God's blessing. Actually, it's a help because it reminds you and I that when it comes to the kingdom of heaven, it is given to people that are so poor in spirit that they realize there is nothing that they can do to earn. So they do not spend their time trying. They spend their time crying. My daughter, um, she's six years old now. She was premature, born at 30 weeks. Um, I didn't really like children. Um, I mean, <laughs> it's funny. All the, the kids are out of here, so I can say this. Um, I like my child. I still don't really like children. But <laughs> when she was young, tucked away in her room, she would be thirsty at night. Um, you know, when you're six months old, you don't just climb out of bed and go to the fridge and get a glass of water. Do you know what you do? You cry. You're aware of your need and your inability, and you cry. And if you have a loving parent, do you know what they do? They come to your aid. 
the beginning of this sermon. Say, no, look, if you want the benefits of God's kingdom, all you need is need. Just an awareness that, no, 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 I'm poor in spirit. There is a type of spiritual poverty that I have where even if I want to do the things that I know that are right, I find myself doing this. I find myself saying, I'm never going to do that again. And I do it again. And then I say, no, 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 but I really mean it. I'm never going to do that again. And I do it again, and I say, all right, Lord, no, 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 if you get me out of this one, I'm never going to do it again. And I do it again. You find yourself being at a place where you want to receive mercy. You know how good it feels to get something that you don't deserve, but you find it very hard to give it. And you become keenly aware of the fact that you have these needs, and then you get so broken down that you find yourself at a place where you say, God, I can't do it. I need your help. And you know what takes place? Everybody that asks for those things from God gets what they ask for. And it rearranges how we think about blessings and burdens, good times and bad times, good circumstances and bad ones. I had a real good friend. Uh, I have a real good friend. In spite of what he did, he's still my very good friend. Um, him and his family lived overseas in China for, for some time. And they got to a place where they hit this really, like, rough patch of this rough spot. And he just lost it was out on the street uh, one day and um, snatched this lady's purse. The cops caught him right away, threw him in a jail cell. And so he's sitting in a jail cell in China. And in that jail cell in China, I don't know how, he has access to a Bible. And he's like, I was there with nothing to do. And I'd been a Christian for my whole life. And for the first time, I read the Bible all the way through. And do you know what? There was some good stuff in there. (laughs) And what you find is he goes back and he tells his story. He's like, man, when I was free and out there and able to do what I want, I lived as if I had some kind of independence. But then when all of that was snatched from me, I felt like it just put me in a place where I realized my deep and abiding need for God. So actually, I look back on my time, and one of the things that I praise God for the most was being thrown into that prison cell in China because it was there that I was made very aware of my need for him, and I cried out to him, and he answered that cry. This is what Jesus is trying to do here on the front, just trying to, hey, listen, he's going to get to behaviors later on what we should do and how we should live, but right now, he's just setting this map key, helping us see there's a different vision 
for what life looks like. Verse 12, here at the end, he says this, look, you are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil thing against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven for that is how they persecute the prophets who were before you. This message, he's saying, listen, if you are a part of the kingdom, the main thing that he's trying to get is that, yo, the broken down can stand up. The broken down can stand up. Part of being a part of God's kingdom is, you know, you're at a Phoenix Suns game cheering for the other team. So when everybody else in the stadium and the world is rejoicing, there's different things that you're trying to look for. And then when you stand up and rejoice for your team, you get the eyes of people staring at you because they're saying, no, 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 no. That's not what we rejoice in. And they look at you crazy and you're saying, I know that y'all don't rejoice in these things, but it's actually these things that remind us of our deep need for God. If you're sitting here and you say, well, John, that is just so hard. It's impossible. You don't know the depths of the things that I've gone through. It's hard for me to reorient myself because I'm praying for things that have me at the very end of a mental and emotional breakdown, and I don't think I can just flip that switch like, like, like you said. Then the best advice that I would give you into reorienting yourself is to look through the pages of Scripture at stories that have already been written and completed. You may be in the middle of yours, but this text is full of stories to people that haven't just hit rock bottom. They've been below sea level. And you see the way that God brings them out. And so it's this, look, reading our Bibles by ourselves or with our families is not just a behavior that we should do to check off of a list so that God would be pleased with us. It's an exercise in renewing our vision and reminding us God did this for one of his children. God has no favorite children, so I can count on the goodness of God, maybe to not show up in the exact same way, but I can count on the goodness of God to be seen clearly in my life in the same way that it was in theirs. I just need to be patient and wait. Whose narrative, what story, what vision is shaping how we live? Every one of us are living based on some promise, and not just a promise, but a reversal of our fates. Every story, think of your favorite movie, your favorite book, is all about a transition, a change. No story, no main character in a story ends the way that they begin, okay? So I'm going to ruin every movie for you that you see from here on out. When they set up something at the beginning, 
that's only meant to be a reference point. You can be sure that at the very end, they aren't going to be like that. If they're insecure at the beginning, they're going to be secure at the end. If they're secure at the beginning, they're going to be insecure at the end. All of us are putting our hope in some promise to reverse the fate or the trouble that we're in. What is revenge other than the belief of a promise that your feeling vulnerable and powerless will be reversed by you taking action on somebody else? What's pride other than believing that your feelings of insecurity and irrelevance will be reversed by impressing others? What's sex outside of the confines of marriage that God has defined? Other than your belief that that closeness and attachment to somebody will reverse the deep loneliness and insecurity that you feel. All of our behaviors are guided by some kind of a vision. Behavior is just your vision with clothes on. And you think of some of the greatest reversal stories in fiction. Cinderella and Aladdin, right? They go from being poor to the palace. You think of some of the greatest reversal stories in nonfiction. Jay-Z going from the projects to a billionaire. You know what nonfiction stories tend to do is we see somebody we're inspired by and we want to emulate their resolve, their drive. And we think that if we just follow their steps, then we'll get the life that they had achieved. And what we don't realize is even the life that they have achieved that we see is airbrushed. And while Jay-Z may have had a blueprint of how he got there, there's a billion other people that have tried that same blueprint and they failed. So do you know what we actually find? We actually find that fictional stories of transformation are actually more truthful statements of how transformation really takes place. Think of Cinderella and Aladdin. It's not just that they do the right thing. It's that as they're trying to do, what do each of them get? Intervention from some powerful force outside of themselves. A fairy godmother or a genie. They say, what do you need? And do you know what they don't spend their time doing? Trying. They ask for help and you get this force from outside that comes in and changes them and they experience this great reversal of fate and we love those stories because we wish that that was true. What if I told you that it was true? The Lord Jesus comes and he doesn't just teach about this vision from the mountaintop. But after this sermon, he comes down and he embodies this vision. You talk about being poor in spirit. We run from it. Jesus ran towards it. He left 
the throne of heaven and came down and wrapped himself up, not just in human flesh, but in unimpressive human flesh and died, hear this, not just for our sins, but the type of death that he died was a shameful type of death. So shameful that it only existed in the history of the world, the way that he experienced it for a very short amount of time before people said, yo, we gotta stop doing it like this. You talk about mourning. Here you have the author of life who can fix diseases or illnesses before they take somebody out. And he can raise them from the dead after he takes them out. But do you know what he does? He mourns. He weeps over a city. He weeps at the funeral that he is getting ready to turn into a celebration. Submitting himself to the feelings that you and I tend to run and distract ourselves from. You talk about humility. Jesus spends his adult life serving the person that he knows will ultimately betray him. You talk about hungering and thirsting for righteousness. He's longing for God's glory to be seen rightly in the world and get so deeply frustrated when the poor are being exploited in the house of God, that he turns over tables and drives people out with a whip. Talk about hungry for God being honored. You talk about peacemaking and persecuting? While Jesus is on the cross being cursed at by the people that actually put him there, being crucified, when you're crucified, you don't bleed out. Your lungs fill up with blood and you choke. So every breath is important. Do you know what he's using his final breaths to do? Assure a repentant but guilty criminal that he'll be with him in paradise and asking God to forgive people that are not asking for forgiveness. Talk about a peacemaker. Talk about behavior. Talk about anybody that should have earned the blessings of God, and it should have been him. And we see this great reversal of fates. Do you know what Jesus gets for all that faithfulness? A shameful death on a cross. Do you know what we get for all that faithfulness? that when we cry for help, God, forgive me. God, change me. God looks down and says, absolutely. That's why my son died. He took your fate so that you can have his. And Jesus rose from the dead, showing that God had accepted his Sacrifice. Jesus the King experiences the ultimate reversal of faith, of fate, so that we, the poor, can experience a drastic reversal.
when it comes to enjoying the blessings of God's kingdom, all you need is need. The end of this Sermon on the Mount, and I know y'all are going to be spending the next few weeks in this. I just want to show you what he warns against. Look here. Not everyone who says to, to, to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. Do you know why this is so fascinating? Because his folks come and say, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? He doesn't say you didn't do any of those things. He doesn't refute their claim. But what he does say, ah, I didn't know you. Why? Because I think the people that actually know God and what he's done for us in Christ would never come to him and roll out a resume of all the things that we tried to do for him. Because that's not how we enjoy the blessings of the kingdom of God. Everybody that knows him knows, no, 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 all we need is need. So we come and say, no, no, God, look, I was poor in spirit. No, God, you know, I was hungry and thirsty for righteousness. I was not a great chef, okay? I love to eat. I am constantly hungry. I do not cook the meals in my house. I have a need that I can't take care of myself. And the people that know God say, no, no, God, I have all of this. I have all of these needs, and I want to be close to you, God. And I know the only way that my behavior can change is if I get this renewed vision, and I can't change my vision any more than I can change my taste buds. God, will you help me? And all of those that cry out to God. In humility and sincerity and an acknowledgement of their need, get what they ask for. And that's good news. I wonder if you're here today and you're bogged down by trying to be all of these things. Let me remind you that your behavior will never rise above your vision. The truly broken, God calls us to stand up. And then we see the truly blessed stand out. This is my second point. It's not nearly as long as the first one. It's a conclusion. And it says this, look, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. 
You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all of those in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. The beauty is when we know and embrace that first truth that all we need is need, it changes how we interact in the world. It changes the impact that we make. It changes the behavior that we live out of because we become something very attractive and flavorful to a world that is very bland and longing for something different. We don't become pharisaical and beat people over the head when they do wrong, we remind them, no, no, listen, listen, listen. I think you're spending your time trying and not enough time crying. We remind them of the way that we came in. And in that way, we become something incredible as a church when people come with their troubles and their problems. We're drawn to need not because we need to be needed. We're drawn to need because we know where people can find the answers. In this way, um, we become the 911 operators of sorts. People call in and they come to us and they say, I need help. And we don't assume that we're the answer to their problems. We're just on the switchboard and we say, listen, I know somebody that can rush to your aid. I know somebody who's already there. I know somebody who's promised goodness for the poor in spirit and the fact that you're admitting your need, your brokenness, your sin, your dependence makes you a candidate for change. And that is a different message than the rest of the world gives. We have an incredible opportunity to remind people that are undergoing some of the toughest tragedies of their life that it is not tragedy that ruins us. It's hopelessness. We have a Savior that rose from the dead, so there is not a situation, a predicament, a circumstance that he is not in, that he cannot work in and through to bring us closer to him, closer to one another, and make us a better reflection of him, his grace, and his kingdom in the world. That's what we've been called into. If you have need in here today, then you can rejoice because you stand in the presence of one who has no needs and is willing to trade places, trade fates with you. And that's truer than any fairy tale than you'll ever read. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, again, we come to you and we thank you um, for the good news of the gospel, Lord. We thank you for the announcement that, Lord, the one who comes to you 
won't be turned away, Father. I pray that you would give us the humility to be reminded daily of our need for you, God. I pray that we would experience a sense of your closeness, a sense of the rich freedom that comes from knowing that we don't have to finagle our way into blessings, Father, that we can acknowledge our need to you and you, our God, will supply all of our needs according to your riches and glory. I pray that you would be with my brothers and sisters here and that Roosevelt Church would be an incredible um, expression, Lord, of your light here in Phoenix. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.